everyone, Shirley here. Welcome to today's topic entitled The People Factor, Leadership, Culture, and the Secret to Growth. We can have fancy plans, incredible technology, and plenty of money, but if we as business owners do not understand and leverage people in the equation, success will be limited. Having the right people on the bus, aligned with mission, and with all oars in the water pulling in the same direction matters when it comes to developing business, teaming with others, executing on contracts, growing our businesses, and creating phenomenal market value. But if it was easy, every business would be doing it right. And well, they're not. To help explore this important topic, I reached out to Hannah Romick, CEO of Conscience Strategies. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you, Shirley. It's so great to be here. Well, it is great to have you. Hannah, please give our audience some background about yourself and Conscience Strategies. Thank you, Shirley. I'm Hannah Romick. I'm the co-founder and CEO at Conscience Strategies. We're a Washington, D.C.-based global consulting firm created to work with leaders to thrive through change. We believe that organizational success is fundamentally linked to strategy, leadership, and culture, And we partner with organizations across the public, private, and social sectors to create value and drive sustainable growth for our clients. We're a certified women-owned small business with deep expertise in the federal and government contracting space. And we think we're unique in that we operate at the intersection of business and human behavior and bring an agile methodology to every engagement. Whether we're developing strategy, conducting leadership and culture due diligence for an M&A deal, or scaling organizational culture, we work as true partners with our clients to maximize impact and ROI. We're going to delve into this intersection of business and human behavior, and I'm particularly interested in your use of agile methods. But let's start with some definitions. What do you mean when you say organizational culture? We think of organizational culture as the set of assumptions and values that underlie the statement, this is how we do things here. Another way of articulating it would be to say that culture is organizational values lived out through day-to-day decision-making and behaviors, kind of like the rules of the road for any organization. There is no single best organizational culture. The right combination of cultural traits for a company will depend on its strategic goals. And what's most essential to having a culture that drives growth and engagement is the alignment of the culture with an organization's mission, vision, values, and goals. Now, CEOs might know this intellectually, but in practice, it's really hard to do. Let's explore this a little. Our audience is government contractors. Share with us your observations of the unique challenges in the government contracting marketplace. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Shirley. It is really hard to do. Um, Government contracting has been in the DNA of content strategy since the beginning. I actually got my start in the government space about 15 years ago when I was working on leadership development and performance improvement project with the U.S. Navy. When we launched Conscience Strategy, some of our earliest clients were prime contractors who were looking for help developing strategy and addressing glaring gaps in their leadership and cultures gaps that were undermining success and preventing them from hitting their targets. Organizations must integrate strategy, leadership development, organizational development, diversity, equity, and inclusion, culture shift, leadership transition, succession planning, organizational and team assessment, coaching, and the human side of digital transformation in order to succeed. 
And that is a very long list. At this stage, it is also critical for leaders to leverage technology and AI tools to understand their workforce and shape solutions to drive forward success. And I might add from my personal experience that providing products and services to the federal sector requires that you develop a culture of service to the American people. Indeed. Unlike in the commercial sector, you know, where profits, of course, are the goal, uh, those of us in government contracting help our clients, federal agencies, fulfill their missions. And that means that the way we think, talk, and act must align with that objective. Do you agree? I 100% agree, Shirley. So there is a lot of merger and acquisition activity in the GovCon market. How does this play out in those scenarios? Well, on the investment side in the GovCon space, one of the biggest untapped opportunities is to integrate leadership and culture into the valuation model and deal cycle for both the buy and sell side. The data shows that over 70% of deals fail to achieve their strategic objectives after financial due diligence alone, and over 46% of CEO leadership transitions in the first year are unplanned. That is a wildly high number. As a result, extraordinary amounts of money are lost and left on the side of the road after the deal closes. It just doesn't have to be that way. Savvy leaders and investors understand the value of addressing leadership and culture at critical inflection points. Pre-diligence, when you start to vet potential deals, during diligence, and immediately post-close, and when there are issues during the post-merger integration. It's really when you have the opportunity to create value, optimize leadership and culture through the deal cycle. And I'll just add that one of the things that has been really fun for us is working simultaneously with our client and their client. We've had the unique opportunity to team with prime contractors on engagements in support of federal customers, but also in the course of that contract, be brought in to work directly with the prime. We've done that with each of our prime relationships to date, which we appreciate is really quite rare in the government contracting world and not the original intent of our teaming either. I see this as a testament to the incredible work our team delivers and the value that we create for both the customer and the prime. I would agree with that. Kana, can you give us an example of a project that you were involved in? Sure, I'd be happy to. One example is a prime teaming arrangement where we were brought in to support the scaling of pilot programs that had taken place in previous contracts. We came to team with our prime when they were a team of four and at only one customer location. And they knew that they'd be scaling to over five locations, both in CONUS and OCONUS, and saw the value of investing in advance and how they would create a culture and knowledge sharing infrastructure to ensure the quality of deliverable across the different sites. Each customer site had its own culture that would influence this. And we were able to define that with the prime leadership and then make recommendations on strategic and operational shifts over the life cycle of the contract. We're about to enter our fourth option year on that contract, and our involvement continues to shift and evolve based on both the customer needs and our teaming partners' internal shifts as well. We've been able to truly strengthen the deliverable to the client as a result of the various interventions we've done. I love this example, Hannah. I work with a lot of technology-oriented companies, 
Some organizational cultures allow knowledge hoarding. It's a power thing. <laughs> I have something you don't, you don't have, and it can be very destructive. The reality is that no one person has all of the knowledge in a rapidly evolving technology marketplace. Creating a culture of learning, problem solving, and sharing knowledge is critical to success. So how were you able to get this client to make that pivot? Well, Shirley, there are a lot of really small steps. It certainly didn't happen overnight. First, we needed to establish our collective understanding of what we're working towards. Is everybody aligned on the objectives and the goals? And then it is a lot of coordinating different viewpoints and perspectives from across the team, both up and down and across the team, to ensure that everybody feels heard no matter the outcome and path forward. And then we work as fast as our client is able to shift the way in which they're working to meet those goals and objectives. Now, your client's client is a federal agency. Did that agency give feedback to their contractor, your client, on their ability to deliver? Yes. The end customer, the agency, continues to be responsive to the way in which we're all delivering services. And the CPARs continue to be excellent on that program. Like any customer, it's always an up and down. And we would argue that the delivery by our prime has been rocky at best. And yet, the feedback about our direct delivery agent, not the, not the management, but the team with the boots on the ground, are doing an exceptional job. Excellent. From your perspective, Hannah, why is the people factor so critical to organizational growth? Organizations must change and adapt in order to thrive. And yet, the people in those organizations fundamentally struggle with that change. The old adage says that culture eats strategy for breakfast, and that remains true, and we would take it one step further. Your financial model, your operations, leadership, and culture are all one part of an integrated whole. Each either supports or undermines your goals and strategy, and you can have a great vision, really strong strategy, and good financial, but if you lack the leadership capabilities to execute on that vision, you will not succeed. Leadership behaviors drive organizational culture. And if your culture and operating behaviors do not change as the organization grows and scales, that same culture that worked when you were small can stall or undermine that growth. Decision-making delays, inefficient communication, ingrained ways of behaving are extremely costly. People risk ties directly back to financial risk. You can indeed quantify the financial impact of leadership and culture on your bridal line, and we do. I see this in my practice all the time. My focus is on federal business development management. I help companies develop strategic business development roadmaps or playbooks. These plans are data-driven and market-focused. They lay out the pathway to success, but so many companies struggle with changing the way they have always done things. Sometimes they choose to ignore what they describe as touchy-feely topics like customer empathy. What are your observations? Oh, I could talk for days about this, Shirley. (laughs) Leadership and culture are always important for organizational success. But the cost of ignoring those factors is even more pronounced in the federal space. Let me tell you a little story about a former client. We had a staffing organization come to us. They had overnight grew from an $800,000 annual revenue to 
$11 million thanks to our U.S. Census. What happened was over the course of three years of their project, they were able to grow and scale, but the CEO had not changed anything about the way in which they worked. They brought in extra recruiters. They brought in extra um, executors, but they did nothing to shift their operation in order to ensure that they would be sustainable over time. And so in as much as they saw themselves as a different kind of staffing organization, the CEO was doing all the work, and he didn't see an off-ramp, and he was about to implode. And so he worked real hard to make sure that everybody on his team felt good when he was dying a little bit every single day with the weight of the operation. And so... In the end, as we evaluated their strategic options and saw what their pipeline looked like in light of, you know, the end of their contract coming up, we worked with them to get ready for acquisition. Wow, that is an excellent example and one that has played out many times in our marketplace. Sure is. Hannah, we need to take a break. I'm talking to Hannah Romick, CEO of Conscience Strategies, about the importance of leadership and culture to organizational growth and success. When we come back, we'll talk about the people factor when it comes to teaming. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This Growth Masters Federal presentation is hosted by Shirley Collier, President and Founder of Scale to Market. Scale to Market helps businesses think, plan, collaborate, and build market value by developing and executing customized, data-driven business development playbooks, building efficient information systems, and creating high-performing BD teams. Utilizing the proprietary Davy Business Development Growth Framework, Scale to Market partners with business owners and executives to increase their company's value by achieving profitable and sustainable growth in the federal marketplace. Email Shirley at scollier at scaletomarket.com to learn more about the Davy Growth Framework and how it can be instrumental in helping grow your federal contracting business. Back now to Shirley's conversation with Hannah Romick. CEO of Conscience Strategies as they discuss the critical role of culture and leadership in government contracting organizations. Welcome back. Before the break, you were giving us an example of a company that grew from 800,000 to 11 million in annual revenues overnight. Let's turn our attention to the people factor when it comes to teaming. Teaming in GovCon is critical for growth. So how does the people factor affect teaming success? You're so right, Shirley. Teaming is fundamental to the success of any GovCon success, and in so many cases can be a first step towards acquisition. When first entering the marketplace, a company is often just looking for a break. Who is that teaming partner with the contract, with the customer relationship, with the minority classification? And then after a few proposal processes, it becomes clear some of the elements that will drive success. Are there any shared goals? Will you simply be filling a hole in that capability matrix? Or are there aligned values and operational norms? Sometimes it makes sense to enter into a JV, which truly is a step in the evolution of whether teaming partners can be, quote-unquote, more than just friends. 
And then, does it make sense, based on the contract timeline or size limitations, to consider a more formal future vision together? We have experiences with potential primes where all the words sounded correct, but then when we actually got to go pull a proposal together or execute the work, it became clear that a long-term teaming arrangement wasn't going to be the best for content strategies. I suspect so many in the marketplace have had that experience, too. And at the end of the day, this is where culture fit is so important to each company's success. I have seen this a lot when a small entrepreneurial innovation-driven company attempts to team with a larger, more structured, bureaucratic government contractor with the small as either the prime or the sub. Small companies must be flexible, jump on opportunities as they arise to be successful. Decision-making is quick, roles and responsibilities are fluid. And as you can imagine, this is not how large companies operate. This leads to a lot of misunderstanding and frustration among all parties. How do you suggest companies resolve these differences if they are just coming together in, say, a prime sub-relationship? Well, surely like any relationship, communication is key. It sounds a little corny, but there is no silver bullet. And in some respects, there may not be a way forward through the frustration, rather an acceptance that there are financial benefits and just leave it there. However, so many of these bigs have enough people and personalities that if you can find your friendlies to help influence decision makers or to brainstorm solutions based on their experience within the big, you can find a path to overcome a lot of the frustration. At the end of the day, the small needs to either find a way to have leverage or find the thing that will help them appreciate the reason they're teaming. That could be income. It could be opportunity to expand. There's so many reasons we all team with each other to move our organizations forward. And honestly, it also happens across the small, small teaming arrangements, too. Without the communication and shared understanding of the purpose for the team, there will be frustrations. And each company has its own culture. Leadership must evaluate whether the teaming relationship will enhance the combined culture or detract from it. Hannah, having launched many interdisciplinary intercompany project teams in my career, I have developed a checklist of topics to discuss at kickoff, during project meetings, and as project milestones are achieved. And they cover a variety of topics like expectations on how the team will communicate and respond to one another, filling out timesheets in a timely manner, who has authority to make decisions, making suggestions on improvements, and resolving conflict. To your point, anticipating and communicating about rules and expectations helps provide a framework for acceptable behavior. Do you have a checklist or guidelines that you can share with our listeners? We do, Shirley. On our website, we have a number of case studies and tools that we use. If our listeners go to www.conscientstrategies.com, you'll find resources around the future of work and guidelines that outline how best to bring leadership, culture, and strategy into the way in which organizations move forward. Good, good. Thank you for that. Now, many companies experience growing pains. I've often observed that the people and skill sets an organization needs at startup are not the ones that are needed at various growth phases. So the CEO is faced with very difficult decisions on who to keep on board and who to replace. What have been your observations? 
Yeah, you're spot on, Shirley. Organizations need different people and skill sets at each phase of their growth. It's important to remember that this is not a bad thing. It's just the nature of business and growth. Too often, leaders think they're immune to this reality. Quite understandably, don't want to make the hard people decisions due to loyalty or friendship. CEOs benefit by having a thought partner, a third party, evaluate their team based on where the company is headed and the capabilities they need to get there. Tying staffing decisions to the company's goals and gathering impartial data about the team's skills can empower CEOs to make critical decisions about who to keep and who to replace. What is your advice for addressing the people side of organizational growth? Generally speaking, we would recommend an assessment be done to evaluate leadership and culture risks in the portfolio of companies and acquisitions to help investors mitigate that risk and improve ROI and exceed their strategic objectives. That evaluation must be coupled with quick wins and actionable recommendations to catalyze growth and enable scale. Adopting an agile methodology is key here, one that can align with financial targets and integrated into the financial due diligence process. There continues to be a role for standard market assessments, coaching methods, and leadership development tools, as long as those are tied back to the strategic objectives and actual evaluation of leadership and culture risks. Our model is rooted in a belief that leadership behaviors drive organizational behaviors and success. There are plenty of groups out there who do post-merger integration work, OD work, and or who help clients address HR needs and assess leaders and teams. But it's critical to go beyond HR policy, comp, and org structure and bring an integrated approach that has a foundation in both business and human behavior principles to our work. Leadership and culture must be tied to a company's operations and bottom line. We know how to move the human levers within an organization to drive lasting change and catalyze growth. And the biggest challenge is transforming the complex, what we like to call the sticky side of human behavior that can simultaneously help ensure a company has the strategy, structure, and leadership necessary to achieve its goals. Can you give us an example of how this plays out? Sure thing. We're currently working with a buy-side client pursuing aggressive, inorganic growth that went through the acquisition process based on financial and some operational due diligence. At a board and senior leadership level, everything was great and friendly, and so they thought that the leadership and culture would integrate easily. Long story short, the deal didn't go through, and our client identified leadership and culture as the primary reason for that failed transaction. They both valued respect and integrity, but they expressed it in different ways decentralized versus a hierarchy. They had how they did decision-making, whether it was collaborative versus command and control, and a high-risk versus a low-risk perspective. This time around, the leadership team wanted to get ahead of the problem and asked us to take a pre-diligence look at leadership culture and operating behaviors. We started with their strategic objectives, adapted our assessment to their values, and identified the top leadership capabilities and cultural attributes that would drive the strategic success. When they vetted their next acquisition, we did a rapid assessment of those standards and looked at organizational maturity and the leadership's ability to cast vision, communicate effectively, and drive results. We quickly identified strong areas of alignment and were able to spot risks and gaps that could get in the way of a smooth integration. Now, 
Most shareholders of small GovCons hope that their 15 years of 60-hour work weeks will result in some kind of exit or liquidity event, such as a merger or an acquisition. I know for a fact that people can enhance or kill a deal. Uh, What have been your observations? You are right, Shirley. People can absolutely enhance or kill a deal. And too often, shareholders of GovCons overvalue or underestimate their own value and the value of people within the company. It's far too common that leaders equate hard work to high value, or worse, base their sense of what is possible on emotions rather than real data. Buyers also underestimate just how much those expectations can impact the deal. Failing to evaluate and deal with the underlying hopes, fears, expectations, and plans of key people with the acquisition can stall the deal before it even starts or erode profitability once integration begins. So what do the leaders of small GovCons most often misunderstand about the people factor? Two things that come to mind today. Leaders of smaller firms often forget that you have a culture, whether or not you define or set that culture. And the culture they they have may not actually be productive. I also think that smaller GovCons are so focused on the next contract for growth that they can forget that there are people that need to come along for the ride. People in the market talk about badge flipping all the time. It always makes me cringe. We've had employees go to the other side. It's one of the aspects of the federal market that I find most difficult to wrap my head around. At Conscience Strategies, we spend a lot of time upfront ensuring that our employees are the right fit, not just from our prime and customer, but for Conscience Strategies overall. Our goal is to keep people for the benefit of our company, not the benefit of the contract. And that is a culture aspect of content that I have observed is rare across the sector. Now, I want to explore this badge flipping phenomenon, which you're right, it's, it's very common. Most government contractors have at least some level of staffing contracts, butts and seats. Mm-hmm. But to add market value, companies have to have something of value that the client treasures. It can be a method, a technology, or subject matter expertise. And they develop this value proposition by truly understanding the customer's pain points, their frustration, their culture, their budgets, limitations, etc., Successful government contractors are not just staffing companies. They may get their feet in the door that way, but they turn into trusted advisors by listening and truly caring about their clients. And that requires a cultural shift. I couldn't agree more, Shirley. Teaming partners look to that customer understanding, and that's exactly having that cultural understanding of their customers for the long-term engagement. Excellent. Any final thoughts or advice for our audience? Listen to your team and your partners. You may not always see the things the way they do, but generally speaking, they can help you see the best path forward towards that growth you're looking to achieve. Hannah, thank you so much for sharing your insights with our audience today. It's been a pleasure, Shirley. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure having you. And folks, if you would like to get in touch with Hannah, she can be reached at hannah at conscientstrategies.com. And that is spelled C-O-N-S-C-I-E-N-T strategies.com. 
or you can reach out to us here at Scale to Market and we'll make sure you're connected. This is Shirley Collier, president of Scale to Market and host of the Growth Masters Federal Podcast, signing off for now. As we close, I want to thank you for joining us today and encourage you to connect with me on LinkedIn and visit our website, that's scaletomarket.com with the number two in the middle, where you will find our library of podcasts, webcasts, white papers, my blog, and other links and resources. While there, please leave us a comment or suggestion so we can stay focused on what's important to you. We'll see you next time.